Chapter 2 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 2 Typhoon Goes Overboard. Baddock, Nova Scotia, July 5, 1920. On the 3rd of July, just two days after the date we had hoped would mark her hop off for foreign parts, Typhoon was launched. Early in March, when the keel was laid, we figured that she would be overboard about the middle of June, and this would have been the case had it not been for a belated epidemic of the flu, which swept the shop clean and set back the schedule by a fortnight. The delay cuts down our time factor of safety alarmingly, and means if we are to reach Cowes, England in time for the Harmsworth Trophy races on the 10th of August, we'll not only have to cut out such alluring prospects as a party at the Royal Cork Yacht Club, and possibly even the very important call at Saint-Pierre-Miquelon, but also that we shall have to drive her for all she is worth across those intervening 2,000-odd miles of North Atlantic. But we are going to do it if it is physically possible. Many things remain yet to be done on the ship, and further to complicate the matter of getting away, all the navies of the world seem bent on descending simultaneously on Ben Brig for demonstrations of the HD-4, it looks as if either Baldwin or Sidney Brees will have to remain behind to do the honors to these visiting delegations, and Harry Greening is so busy whipping his new Fisher Trophy challenger into shape that he too will have to be counted out. We should have a crew of four all told, although three could do it in a pinch, but who the rest of the crew will be, God only knows. But to get back to the launching, never was there a prettier one. As the bottle of rye flew into a thousand sparkling splinters against her stem, with a determination that suggested Mrs. Baldwin's prowess with a racket, Typhoon started majestically down the ways. Gaining impetus as she went, she slid into the water on her broad stern, left her cradle behind, and floated serenely out into the lake, her shiny black sides, red boot top, white house, buff decks, fairly singing in the sunlight. It was inspiring, and it drew a shout from the little knot of workmen and visitors who had gathered in the shop to witness the ceremony. Then, taken in tow by the Dundee, she was brought alongside the wharf, where a reception was held in which our water-breaker played a prominent part. It was a great relief to see her afloat. When I arrived at Banbrigg, nineteen days ago, it looked as if the game was up. The hull was practically completed except for the cabin top, but the caulking had not been finished, and it seemed as if the work of jacking and smoothing the hull, paying the seams, and painting alone would take a month. Then there were such things as chain plates to cut and shape from the Tobin bronze stock, the rudder to make with its special bronze fittings, the plumbing to finish, the standing rigging to cut, splice, and serve, and each day seemed to make but a terribly small hole in the vast total of things still to be done. But as we slid down the ways, Typhoon and I, we seemed to leave behind us that sense of the impossibility of the thing, and once afloat, sailing for England in a week seemed well within the realm of rational things. So carefully had Atkin made his calculations that the ship floated perfectly, several inches above her load waterline, and, joy of joys, slightly up by the head. I had feared that those fine waterlines and forward sections, and her consequently light displacement at this point, might bring her down too low due to her exceptionally heavy construction, but this was not the case, 
in spite of the fact that some ballast already had been placed well forward beneath the water tank. Allowing for the masts and the three tons or so of additional ballast, she carries only 3,000 pounds in her lead shoe, and her equipment of gear and stores, there still seemed no danger of pulling her down much below her designed load waterline. Today, both her sticks were stepped, their beautiful proportions and saucy rake adding materially to the already trim appearance of the boat. Typhoon looked quite lofty until the bully old battering ram of a bowsprit was housed, which carries out the line of the shear and puts the finishing touch to a picture of concentrated power. The standing rigging, too, is quite in keeping with the sticks. Old George McKay, erstwhile square rigger, who did the splicing and serving of the shrouds, pennants, bridles, and stays, never seen the like o' that wire for toughness in all his seagoing days. The exhaust line and fuel and water piping of the engine are now complete, and the power plant, while not large, has the reassuring air of being able to plug along till the crack of doom. The crude oil and lubricating oil are waiting on the dock, and in a day or so we shall have a chance to see whether a crude oil engine actually will run. The installation of the exhaust line was a problem. Atkins' plan of running a pipe clean through the boat from side to side would have been all right if a hump had been worked into the line connecting it with the muffler to prevent water backing up. But since the exhaust would always be from the weather side when the boat was heeled under sail, and consequently would blow directly across the cockpit, we decided to abandon it. The usual method of running the line out the stern undoubtedly is the neatest, but there is the ever-present possibility of taking in water when running before a sea, and for this reason we decided to run the pipe right out the side deck abaft the cockpit. A two-foot length of three-inch brass pipe on a swinging elbow makes it possible to shoot the gas out of the way, no matter where the wind is, and furthermore, the chance of taking water into the motor is eliminated. We figure that we shall have to use the motor whenever there is insufficient wind to drive us more than about four or four and a half knots, and in light weather, of course, we shall run it continuously. But in this country, which the good Lord must have designed for sailormen, there seems always to be a spanking breeze, and most of the time from the southwest. Outside, the conditions should be much the same, and unless we strike a run of bad luck, the passage should be a quick one. Tomorrow the sails are to be bent. Besides the three working sails, we are taking a square sail for running straight before it in heavy weather, and a storm jib to be set flying to an eye bolt in the stem head, obviating the need of working out on the bowsprit. With the instincts of a true racing man, Casey is strong for a spinnaker. It is really not a bad idea, but at this time of year there should be plenty of moderate weather, and so we are carrying a spare one off the scrapper. We are not taking a trysail, for we figure that there are sufficient combinations of sail for heavy weather without it, and besides, it's a nuisance to set one. If it gets really bad, we'll put out the sea anchor and call it a day. The sea anchor is a modification of the Voss type, a big canvas bag. The mouth is six feet square, and there is a one-foot opening in the apex, the hole heavily bolt-roped. To make this surefire, we have worked out a sort of bull-nose fitting for the end of the bowsprit, through which to lead the rope, and with this seven-foot extra leverage afforded by the stick, there should be no difficulty in holding her head into it. Before getting off the subject of sails, I would like to take this opportunity to thank old Jack Hanna for what looks to be a mighty good suggestion for holding the outboard end of the club of the jib. 
instead of the short club which he feels will eventually tear the sails, or the traveler frequently seen on working schooners, he suggests a gooseneck fitting for the end of the club, well out at the end of the bowsprit, and a loose lacing and an outhaul for the foot of the jib, which allows it to be properly trimmed and permits it to be completely lowered, an impossibility with a full-length club and a tight lacing. I sent the sketch on to Baldwin some time ago, and he thought so much of it that he had the fitting made up in bronze. Another problem that confronted us was what sort of tender to carry, whether to go in for a dory or some other type of craft which might be used as a lifeboat or just a plain dink. The dinghy idea won out, although I must confess that the presence of a partially finished 12-footer in the shop determined the matter. But after all, it seems to us that it is better on a boat the size of Typhoon to put your confidence in the ship itself and take a chance, rather than try to carry a lifeboat, which to be worthy of the name would have to be so large that it would be a nuisance on deck. Barring the slight possibility of being run down or of hitting something substantial enough to put a hole in the planking, I can see no contingency where a lifeboat would be more desirable than taking a chance with the ship. Certainly no stress of weather would warrant it, and fire with a cargo of crude oil and kerosene only is out of the question. The tender has been finished up, and she is a little beauty, combining those seemingly incompatible qualities so desirable in a dinghy. Carrying capacity, lightness, ease of rowing, and the ability to tow well even in a bad sea. The model is one developed here in the shop, and is the embodiment of Baldwin's experience with a long line of such craft. We shall carry her capsized over the side of the cabin trunk and lashed down to eye bolts in the deck. Saturday, July 10th. Today we gave Typhoon her first trial run. In the morning she was towed around from her berth at the aeroplane shed in the little harbor and brought alongside the dock where the remainder of the ballast was put aboard. Simultaneously, the crude oil was siphoned from the barrels into the fuel tanks and the 200-gallon water tank was filled and when these operations were completed, her trim was almost exactly on her designed waterline. A few last touches were given to the rigging, and everything was in readiness for a trial. Would she balance and steer well? Would she keep her nose up when she heeled? And would she be fast enough to justify the loss of interior space forward caused by her fineness? These were questions that bothered us, but we need have had no concern. Starting out close-hauled to a brisk southwest breeze, she slid along through it with a noticeable lack of fuss, although with rather more angle of heel than we had expected. This can be corrected by more ballast, but we regret that we did not put 6,000 pounds of lead in the shoe instead of 3,000 pounds. This weight would have given her a greater riding moment without resorting to so much inside ballast. Of course, a large proportion of ballast inside is desirable on a cruising boat, as it makes for easier action in a sea, but with such heavy construction as we have gone in for in Typhoon, we could really hang all our ballast on the keel without danger of too quick a roll. Her balance, I think, is better than any boat I have ever sailed. With just enough weather helm for safety, a touch of the finger is sufficient to put her on her course, and by trimming the sails she can be made to sail herself when reaching or when on the wind. Our party on this first run was an unusually critical one, including as it did three representatives of the British Admiralty, who had come across to play with the HD-4, each of whom had had a large experience with small boats. G. H. Child, RCNC, 
who had had a great deal to do with designing small craft for the British Navy, could find no fault with the lines of the hull, and Engineer Commander W.S. Mann, OBE, an expert on diesel engines, took quite a fancy to our motor. He liked the sturdy quality of it. Commander C.C. Dobson, V.C. D.S.O., was the third of the experts, who among them covered the entire field of the small boat. Commander Dobson, erstwhile submarine skipper, was later in the war transferred to the CMBs, the fast hydroplanes that did such spectacular work in the later months of the war. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for dashing into the Russian harbor of Kronstadt on the Gulf of Finland with a small flotilla of 55-foot motorboats and sinking a number of battleships right under the nose of the land batteries. He has handled all sorts of small craft, and when, after a session at Typhoon's Wheel, he pronounced her a successful boat, we felt that our own enthusiasm was justified. Were it not for Admiralty orders, Dobson would sail back with us to England. There is a side to every limey's nature which I have always admired, and that is the serious belief in doing a thing for the sheer fun of it, whether it's sailing a small boat or merely storming the Zeebrugge Mole. Successful as she was close-hauled, she was more so on a broad reach at somewhat less angle of heel. The wind dropped a little, but still she slipped along at a good clip instead of becoming sluggish, as is frequently the case with heavy cruisers. We were sailing back from Shenkady toward Baddock, leaving the boats which had come out to test our speed well astern, when we sighted a yawl beating down the big door passage. As we drew together, I was struck by the familiar appearance of the stranger, and we changed our course a bit to try, if possible, to overhaul her before she reached Braddock. As we bore down on her, our suspicions were confirmed, for she proved to be none other than the good old Tamerlane, which at one time I had thought of buying, and which had influenced us to some extent in laying out Typhoon. Designed by Larry Huntington as a straight sailing craft, she carries more sail in proportion to her size than does Typhoon. She is seven feet shorter on deck, but her bowsprit is much longer, and her jigger extends well over her counter. Only a day or so before, Casey and I had looked over her design and wondered what our chances against her would be, and then, on the very day of our trial run, there she was. And we beat her. End of chapter 2